back before there was internet, I hated footnotes. So I am an anti-footnote person. And I think that what you have to ask yourself is, if all the footnotes were cut off, would I still win? Hey, everybody, what's up? And welcome back to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers. I am your host, Robert Scavone, Jr. Today, we are going to talk about legal writing. Many lawyers love to write, others hate it, and some are ambivalent. But regardless of how you feel about writing, as lawyers, we all must do it. Writing is a big part of our work. The great thing about legal writing, however, is that whether you're a veteran or a rookie, you can always improve your writing. On this episode of Summarily, my co-host Lindsay Lawton and I sit down with Amanda Haverstick to talk about common mistakes legal writers make and how we can learn to write right. Amanda is a legal writing coach, writing consultant, and the founder of Writing Law Tutors, LLC. She helps lawyers, law firms, and law students improve and fine-tune their writing. Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom about legal writing. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here, and I just, I love the stuff, so it's a good topic. Yeah, and Lindsay and I do as well, so we're really excited. Before we get into the legal writing aspects or the legal writing discussion, can you tell us a little bit about your career, um, what you do now, and maybe how that transition occurred? Sure. It's um, the first 20 years I was in big law, started in New York in 96, and I was in a labor and employment lawyer. And I did some traditional labor law, but mostly employment litigation. And I started in New York, then was in Philly at some big firms. And then I actually spent two and a half years in-house working at Hershey, which was wonderful because it's such a neat company. And it just, that, that all was wonderful. But I really missed, I missed being a lawyer. I mean, I missed like doing it and being the one taking the deposition and being the one writing the brief and really getting into the nitty gritty. Cause I just, I love, I love the writing and, and sort of all that stuff. And you don't get to do as much of that in-house. And um, so I went back to the original firm in New York And I was there for another five years and then finished up in Philly at a firm and just the last firm didn't really, it was just not a fit. And I just was really, really burnt out after, I mean, it's too long to stay in big law is my, I mean, I just, but I had three kids and I was working at like 70, 80% schedule and just eventually just sort of like, I can't, you know, do this. And luckily it, it coincided with Matt's job change. So it enabled me to have some flexibility, but, and then I really was a stay home mom for several years since, I mean, 2016 to 2020 really. And, you know, I won't go into that time. It was definitely a whole, you know, self-exploration, figuring it all out and, and whatever. And then I started really by chance, just helping one one L who was struggling oh. in first year law school. And it just really all evolved from there. And and um and then I guess about six or nine months in, I started working with lawyers because that's really what I had done my whole career. I was when I was 
working at firms, I was often the, the person who got brought in to fix the briefs and write the briefs <laughs> on cases I wasn't involved in. It's been wonderful. Can you explain a little bit about what you're doing right now with, with the tutoring that you sure. provide? Sure. So for law students, there are some limits on what I can do because in the first year of law school, there's very strict ethics rules because it's all in a curve. And so I can't, I don't help during, you know, before they get graded, but I can help them turn it into a writing sample and just work on it in general and work on the fall one because that will make them better in the spring one. I also help with the full job application packet, just all the resumes and cover letters and all that stuff. And then with lawyers, I work mainly when on their work, what they're working on, because mm -hmm. what lawyer wants to do an assignment or an extra writing project, right? We all have so much to do. And so just really like playing the role as a senior associate who would take an associate and be the person between so the partner doesn't get a brief that they have to like redo right? and, and making it better. And it teaches the the you know, junior associate, how to write better, much the way I did when I was at the firm in that role. But I also work with partners who want to get into writing articles and they, or they want to just elevate, elevate a little more. Maybe their, you know, their writing is fine, but it's not quite partner material. So Lindsay and I invited you on because we wanted to talk to you obviously about legal writing. And I know that we're going to get to some tips and tricks throughout the uh, podcast, but what do you want to start off with? I mean, I think maybe talking a little bit about the technical aspects of legal writing would be helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think the starting point is where, you know, I pick up a brief and I'm going to read it and I'm the reader. So the first thing you think of is, well, what does this thing look like? Is it... I mean, how is it put together? Is it visually appealing? Is it look, am I excited to read this or am I already thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be <laughs> squinting. And so I think that you need to realize that what you're putting down, it's like, it's a whole package. You need to make it look good and sound good. So I would say if you want to know the biggest, like the most common, which is going to sound very basic because it's essentially a typo, but is that they'll use a model that has a single plaintiff and they have plural plaintiffs or vice versa. And I cannot tell you, I mean, that's just something that's, that's a bigger common error than, than misspelling your, you know, and saying Y-O-U apostrophe R-E instead of your, I mean, it's just one of those things. It's like people cannot see it when they're in it. So I think that it's really helpful to have another set of eyes for any, no matter what level you are, because we can all make silly things like that. That sounds like to me, Amanda, that the biggest problem that legal writers that you're seeing struggle, struggle with is not really in the ability to write, but in the ability to edit or willingness or time to edit. <laughs> Would you agree with that? Yes. And I think that you can back it all up. I don't know if you all are familiar um, with Brian Garner's Flowers Paradigm, which he will talk about you not, not only do you have the deadline of the brief or when you get need to get it to the person who's reviewing, but you should plan when you're going to be finished and when you're going to edit. Like maybe you're going to stop writing. You're, you should be done five days before it's due because you need to sleep on it, not think about it for 24 hours and then go back and edit and look at it. 
Now, in the fast pace that, you know, in which we all work, it's very, very difficult to do. But if you can try to factor that in and just know that you're going to have, you have to plan more time than you think, because you're, you'll be fried at the end, you're not going to catch things and you'll be so brief blind from just being in the weeds of what you're writing that you're not going to see things and you're not going to be able to look at it objectively. I love that. I love that uh, phrase you just stated. I don't know if you came up with that on your own. Brief. What blind. did I say? <laughs> yeah. Brief brief blind. Blind. I haven't heard that one. Is that a what did I say? Oh, brief blind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Completely. Because you're just you can't. I mean, it's just like when you look at you, you don't see things that you've stared at forever. You don't notice them. And you're you you when you proof it, you think you know what it's going to say because you mm -hmm. know the content. And so then you just assume it says that and you don't actually read it. So I agree, Lindsay. I think that the planning and the time, how you allocate your time in brief writing really needs to change because people just, they don't think before they start to write. So let me back up for a second. You first mentioned the aesthetics of the brief or the motion. Sure. What about the use of pictures and things like that in your court documents to give the reader a break from reading and also to help the writing be more persuasive? Do you, do you find yourself telling lawyers to think about including those sort of things, whether it be pictures or graphs or some sort of a visual image to, to, um, to add impact. I love all of those ideas. I will admit to you that those are very recent. And mm -hmm. when I was practicing, um, you know, in 2016, that was not really accepted. We didn't, I mean, we also didn't have the, when you put your site in, how you have links and we didn't do that. Like there's just a lot of different, uh, different things. And I would say that the people that I'm writing with often have so much to worry about before they're going to worry about whether they're going to put a picture or something. The one thing that I have recommended is sometimes a, a timeline can be helpful if you have a long fact pattern and you you want to sort of lay it out that the court could just look in one place and have it, you know, sort of your own cheat sheet that you use for yourself to remember when things happen and which came first in the case. Well, the court, that would actually really be helpful to the court too. In Florida, we recently had a rule change where now for appellate briefs, we're required to use either Bookman Old Style or Arial. And I know that part of the thinking was that those fonts are easier to read on screens. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about that is too, or the difficult part for me is those fonts are much bigger. Like a size 14 Bookman Old Style is bigger than Times Bookman New Bookman Old Style is enormous. That's, that is enormous and it's spaced out. So it takes up more room. <laughs> yeah. So in a way it creates more white space, but it also forces me to write even shorter paragraphs than, than, than seems reasonable. <laughs> Yeah. And so I, and it's kind of a struggle. I wonder if y'all are seeing that or, or having that struggle yourselves. <laughs> I mean, any, any, like in terms of, you know, law firms that have thought about the, the font question and made decisions, Century, Century Schoolbook seems to be really the, the, yes. All right. Well, <laughs> Robert likes that's that one. <laughs> what people are really liking. And it may be a tiny bit bigger than Times New Roman, but I don't think appreciably and not as big as Bookman old style. I think it's it's so a matter of personal preference that I think that you could really split hairs going worrying about this type of stuff. And I think you're gonna get differences of opinion. So 
I think that as long as it looks good and that you're consistent and you don't change fonts halfway through, which <laughs> sometimes happens when you cut and paste from another brief, that you know, I think you're you're probably okay. I think that there's obviously some fonts that are illegible. So <laughs> let me pause for a moment to thank our sponsor, the law office of Scott N. Richardson, PA. Scott is a former prosecutor who now focuses exclusively on criminal defense and he is one of the leading criminal defense lawyers in Florida. I have known Scott for several years and litigated against him when I was a prosecutor. All of the judges, prosecutors, and defense lawyers I know regard Scott as a phenomenal lawyer. He is a consummate professional who always zealously advocates for his clients. Scott has been board certified in criminal law for nearly 30 years, and he's been practicing law for over 40. He is a fellow at the American College of Trial Lawyers, an honor bestowed on only 1% of the lawyers in any state. If you need representation, reach out to Scott at 561-471-9600 or find him at scottnrichardsonlaw.com. A lot of legal writing professors, certainly the ones that I had in law school, and a lot of reading legal writing coaches will tell you, you know, never speak in the passive voice. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like speaking in the passive voice every once in a while. I think it adds a little bit, you know, it adds a different dimension to your writing instead of the, you know, and it, it kind of breaks the monotony a little bit. What's your philosophy or thought on using passive voice? Um, it's probably consistent with yours. If you have a good reason to use it, you should use it. If you don't have a reason, you should regularly write an active voice and that should be an exception. But one caveat to that is that regardless of what you want to do or variety, if it's going to change the clarity and make something ambiguous, which passive voice can sometimes do, especially if you don't say who the actor is that is doing something. I mean, there's been court cases too, just on ambiguity created by that, by passive voice. And so I think that clarity will always trump everything. And then mm-hmm. after that, definitely, I would, I would, you know, not use passive unless I had a good reason. And sometimes a good reason can just be, it sounds better. The flow is better. I mean, I definitely, I'm, I'm a big, I like, I listened for how things sound and the words and what sounds they make. And and I think that's really important. Amanda, let's move on to the substance of the writing. I know that you had a few issues that you wanted to discuss about what's important when you're looking at the substance. I think that when I, I mean, when I pick up a brief and read it, you, I mean, as the reader, things will seem ambiguous to you that won't be to the writer. I feel like there are words that people just use and they don't think about their words. They just put it in because that's maybe how they might say it, or it's the first word they think of, but they don't realize that this word has multiple meanings and that you need to be careful choosing your words and that you can't just sort of willy-nilly, as Lindsay says, I love that term. You can't willy-nilly just sort of use the word that you want to use. You got to think about it. And is this the right word? So I would say that and passive voice where you take several words to to say a verb. So took the deposition of rather than depose deposed. Or I, another one is that I is to make an arrangement for rather than to arrange. I mean, most of those clauses are going to, they're going to sound better, be shorter, and just 
get to your point faster if you just use the verb. Amanda, another topic that comes up frequently is string sites. Do you have any thoughts on when it's appropriate or helpful to use a string site or, and when it's not? I would say similar to block quotations, use infrequently and really only where you're trying to show the weight of authority is in your favor or whether just the volume or the length of time, you know, during which something's been settled, that that can be helpful. I think, and sometimes you may not have cases that are directly on point. So you want to have a range of them to get around to your point. But if you do that in parentheticals, the reader has no context for, for why something was decided. So if you're gonna do parentheticals, you really need to introduce it with, I mean, you could have maybe four sentences and say where you talk about this sort of body of law that collectively means something, and then you could cite it. But what I find people do is they just cut and paste the name of the case and a quote usually, and they don't yeah. think what does this mean or how did it apply in context and how therefore might it apply here? Yeah, that makes okay. sense. That, that actually reminds me of something that Brian Garner says, which is that it's better to make your point in your text than in your parentheticals. So you parentheticals are helpful. or your footnotes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But they're not to be relied on to make your argument. I think so. Absolutely. They're a reference or a citation. They're not, I mean, they're, they're really, if imagine if they were all at the end notes, you know, and so you couldn't look at them until the end right. or something like that. So that's not how you want to be making your arguments. You want it to be up in the text. It's just much more persuasive. And I think it's very easy to get enamored with the language that just sounds so perfect. Oh, the court really went against the other side. So you want to sort of get the get the emotion from the court language. And, you know, sometimes that certainly can add something, but only if you've done your analysis and that's kind of a punctuation rather than the whole, all your analysis, just relying on what the court said, like, see this, see this. Wow. That's a great, uh, that's a great tip, you know, using the, using the citation as a punctuation, you know, I never really thought about it that way. And that's, I don't that's think really I did either. Tip. I like that. <laughs> that was just a stroke of genius that came out. I love it too. <laughs> Amanda, you just mentioned footnotes and the use of them in the digital age. You almost invariably, unless you, maybe if you've got your monitor set up, you know, vertically instead of horizontally, you've got to scroll to find the footnote. Whereas Back in the age of paper, you just had to look at the bottom of the page. What's your take on when and when not to use footnotes? So uh, back before there was internet, I hated footnotes. So I am an anti-footnote person. And I think that what you have to ask yourself is if all the footnotes were cut off, would I still win? Is there anything that's that important? Like, let's just assume they're all going to get cut off. Does it matter? You know, and, and that can be a way. And it's actually funny back in, um, when we first, the late nineties, we were just getting the ability to send documents by email. This was a new thing that you could attach something to your little message you were sending to someone. I mean, this yeah. was all new, but the footnotes got cut off. So 
you would get the text, but you couldn't get the footnotes. And for some reason, that was like the best thing that happened to me because it made me realize, okay, well, what what if my footnotes got lost somehow? But somehow, I don't know. That's like, great. Stolen by an evil demon. And so so that to me is is, you know, ask yourself that question. That's a fantastic way of looking at them. But I also do think that sometimes footnotes get a bad rap because there is a proper use for them. So, and I think the reason they get a bad rap is that a lot of people use them incorrectly to make points that need to be made in the text. And this may be because in the past, and maybe still in some jurisdictions, we had page limits and your footnotes take up less space. But now in Florida, we have uh, word counts. And I think that's probably the case in a lot of jurisdictions. And so, you don't get as much mileage out of your footnote if you're using using them improperly as you might have in the past. Um, but the way I like to think of footnotes is, is like Amanda said, it's information that is not essential to what you're arguing, but that the reader may want to know. If I, if I can sense that a reader might want to know something, then I may drop a footnote to say it. But if, if the reader doesn't read the footnote, it's not going to hurt my argument. Amanda, one criticism of legal writing courses in law school is that, you know, you're being graded by an individual who has their own subjective beliefs about how writing should look and sound. And unfortunately, you know, students who don't sound or write like the professor, maybe not, you know, maybe they don't do as well. Is it important for the legal writing profession in law school to let their students kind of be different. Let them write in their own style. I mean, obviously, there's there are rules that you have to follow, but stylistically, is there room for individuality? In terms of the law school professors, what they should be doing is saying, here are how people, let's take the topic of whether you should start a sentence with however. Let me tell you the reasons that people don't like it. And then other reasons that people say that maybe it's good. And let me explain to you. And then you're going to need to make some decisions and you're going to, but there isn't like one thing is right and one thing is wrong. And I think I can't, I have so many students who are like, well, my legal writing professor said not to use that verb or not to, you know, or to do it this way. And it's very, they don't realize that that, that it's one subjective person and that there's lots of ways that you're going to have to learn. And I think it, it's very calming too, to them. And it makes them feel just a little bit, wow. Okay. It's not just me that this is mm -hmm. that, you know, writing is subjective and there's, I think, I mean, there's certainly people who don't write the style that I would write in, but I think they're excellent writers because I, and I'm engaged with their writing and it's really clear. And I think students just think, oh, I should do this and I shouldn't do this. They don't think about why, or they don't realize there might be times that you don't, you know, where you don't follow that. And what, one of, I mean, my, probably my favorite quote, which I'll probably botch, but is the Picasso quote to learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like a master. Yeah. And that applies so perfectly to legal writing. And I have found, I mean, I have a ball with legal writing and alliteration and figuring out words <laughs> and the thesaurus and how am I going to make the sound less blah? And so to me, it's very, there's a lot of creativity. It's very individualistic, but I think that you do need to learn the rules, but it's helpful to learn that they, 
why the rules are they are or why people have preferences rather than just to say, do this, don't do this, which I think is how they get taught. Amanda, Robert and I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We've been looking forward to this and really appreciate all your insight. Can you let the listeners know where to find you? Sure. I would say that I probably, the easiest way is to look at me, look up me, look me up on LinkedIn because that's usually where I am. And I would say that I check DMs and messages there as often as I will check email. And so I would say that's probably where you can find me. I do have a website which is easily accessible at dear1l.com or by name, amandahaverstick.com. I have both of those domains. So even though the name of my company is Writing Law Tutors, you don't have to type all that in. Well, thank you again, Amanda, for joining us. This has been fantastic. I'm sure that the listeners are going to get a lot of really good information. Thank you so much for having me. All right, folks, that's a wrap. Lindsay and I want to thank you for listening. And of course, we want to thank Amanda for joining us today. I want to thank my friend Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions for editing and producing this podcast. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash Pendulum Productions LLC. And of course, we want to thank you all for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. And remember, folks, case law is one word. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an advertisement for legal services. The information provided on this podcast is not intended to be legal advice. You should not rely on what you hear on this podcast as legal advice. If you have a legal issue, please contact a lawyer. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests are solely those of the individuals and do not represent the views or opinions of the firms or organizations with which they are affiliated or the opinions of this podcast sabotage. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Any editing, reproduction, or redistribution of this podcast for commercial use or monetary gain without the expressed written consent of the podcast creator is prohibited.